Hello and welcome to the Missing Link in Neovascular AMD podcast series. My name is Carl Rogello. I'm the Chief of the Retina Service at Wills Eye Hospital and partner at Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. I will serve as the moderator of this podcast, and our goal is to have an open and honest discussion around our topic. This podcast episode will explore treatment endpoints in real-world clinical practice, is achieving a favorable retreatment interval a goal of therapy. I'm very pleased to have with me on this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Lim of the University of Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Charlie Wyckoff of Retina Consultants of Houston and Blanton Eye Institute in the Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. Welcome, Charlie and Jenny. Hey, Carl. Great to be here. Thanks. Great to have you both. First, a little bit about the format on the uh, podcast. This podcast is part of an editorially independent program exploring treatment burden in neovascular AMD and new and novel agents in development that may help us address these issues in the clinic. Although the program is supported by advertising, the discussion, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the participants. So to set the stage and get started here, I'd like to start by saying the anti-VEGF era represents a major breakthrough in the management of neovascular AMD. That's obvious. Most of our patients have some degree of visual acuity improvement after starting treatment, but both treatment response and durability of these drugs we've been using for the past 16 years or so are limited. And I'm sure everyone would agree we could do better. To start things off, I'm going to ask Charlie a question, because Charlie knows all the data and the literature in this regard about durability. Well, Charlie, the data seem to suggest, in terms of what's been published, that the median durability of the drugs we've been using over this time frame averages about two months or so, and that's in the maintenance phase. Would you say that's about right? And if so, what sort of range do we get for these drugs? Well, thanks. That's a great lead in. And I think that that, that that estimate of the average durability is quite reasonable. But the problem is average is never a given patient, right? The patient in front of us wants to know what their interval is going to be. So when I tell them the average is eight weeks, and then they need it every four weeks, and they're still actually with persistent fluid at four weeks, they're, they're not as happy. And so I usually don't talk averages with patients. Truthfully, I, I talk actually percentages. So when I have a new patient, um, I'll often talk to them about, look, I'm going to start with monthly dosing, regardless of the medication we're going to use. And then over time, I found that about 20 or 25% of my patients need monthly dosing for long-term, whereas the majority of patients can go longer than monthly, sometimes much longer than monthly. And then I'll often say about a third of my patients can get to every three or four month dosing. So I kind of give them like where they might end up on the two extremes and what those percentages are. And then I, I assume everything else in the middle is quote unquote average. Cause the key is that it really is an individualized sort of outcome when it comes to durability, at least with our current therapeutics. So a range is anywhere from four weeks to 12 weeks, maybe up to 16 in some patients. Would you agree? I think that's reasonable. I have very few patients that I do more frequent than, than four weeks. I currently have two patients that I'm actively treating with more frequent than every, every four weeks. Um, because if I go four weeks with current agents, they, they get progressively worse, but, the, but, the, but those patients are rare. And then on the durability side, you know, Carl, I think you were one of the first people that really pushed the envelope out to 16 weeks with a Flibercept um, a few, few years ago with your Atlas study. And I do occasionally I'll take a patient out to 16 weeks if they've been really rock solid, stable and dry at 12 weeks for a long time. But most of the time my backstop is 12 weeks. Yeah, I personally 
arbitrarily still cap it at around 12 weeks because I really do think it's a small percentage no longer. Jenny, is that your experience? And if so, go back to the beginning when you first see the patients with AMD. Can you predict upfront if this is a patient that's going to need treatment really frequently every four weeks or very infrequently every 12 weeks? You know, I agree with what Charlie has said, and I think pretty much what I like to do, first of all, is start off with a treat and observe method. So basically treat them, see their response, and then try to predict what is their actual personal dosing interval. So I try to personalize that. So I'll probably see them more often than not early on, and they will be dry, and I will skip the treatment, and then I will try to push the envelope. And when I figure out what their sweet spot, what their treatment interval is, and I'm confident with that, then I will treat them and see them back at that interval. Of course, always erring on the side of, you know, over treatment and seeing them sooner rather than not. Uh, with regards to, um, you know, whether I can predict how they're going to do, I think that's really hard to do. You know, AI algorithms are trying to do that. And to this date, we really don't have a good way. However, I think if you have a patient that has a PED, for instance, or a very large CNVM or a chronic CNVM in an older patient, I think those factors are indicative that they're going to need more treatments up front. So I pretty much, you know, I'll tell them, look, you know, you've got this pigment epithelial detachment, you've got lots of components uh, indicative of chronicity, and it's probably going to take a lot more treatments with monthly treatments up front to get you under control. Yeah, I think they are extendable. If we catch them really early, they seem to go on to extension faster, but it doesn't always, and, and certainly they do better visually, but doesn't always predict how often they're going to need it. And that's, um, unfortunately, this is a trial and error process and we got to figure it out. And uh, I also tell the patients that, you know, studies tell us that, you know, the drugs are able to sort of get our, the macula dry, which for the most part is our goal to get it dry and keep it dry. But the ability to achieve absolute dryness is probably in the 70, 80% range, depending on the drug and, and the studies you read. Um, but uh, is, that, is that your experience? And if so, what, what happens to the other 20, 30%? Do you start to extend them or do you just treat them every four weeks? And uh, do you find some so-called non-dry eyes you will extend and tolerate some fluid? I'll stay with Jenny on that. Would you, would you tolerate some fluid basically is what I'm getting to? I think the key is, is it intraretinal fluid or is it subretinal fluid? So intraretinal fluid we know is really linked with visual acuity outcomes and functional loss. So I do not tolerate intraretinal fluid. So I will push the envelope. I will treat monthly, monthly, monthly. And if necessary, as Charlie already alluded to, there are some patients that you have to treat with a variety of drugs alternating at intervals short of one month. That being said, if there's a scant amount of subretinal fluid, the visual acuity is good, and it's just a tiny little bit of fluid. I can tolerate that, but I will not tolerate any increase in that fluid. Um, some people quote the fluid study, you know, as um, some evidence that you can tolerate some of the fluid, but I don't tolerate 200 microns uh, of fluid, uh, as was done subfoveally in that study. But a little bit, yes, depending upon everything else being equal. So it makes it hard to define some of these terms that are thrown around non-response, suboptimal response. Charlie, can you wrap your hands around those and give us some, some ideas of what these patients are? What's a suboptimal responder? Or is there a non, non is, is there such thing as a non-responder? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think I, I try not to get too tied up in the semantics because everyone will have their detailed little, little answers and tweaks to that. I think a true non-responder is very unusual in, in, in the avascular AMD. 
Um, I have one caveat that I'll talk about in a second, but if I have someone that looks like they have exudation and they're not responding to anti-VEGF dosing, I'll see them back sooner than, than a month. I'll see them back in a week or two after an injection. Um, and if there's really no response there, then, then you're really thinking about a masquerade syndrome, right? A vitelliform dystrophy, a CSR, something else. Um, and so I'll often do an angiogram or an ICG at that point and think about a different diagnosis um, and may even just begin to observe those patients because sometimes you can get that pseudovitelliform sort of fluid, that debris that is just chronic and is not actually related to exudative and exudative process. The one place where, where I think the term might work though is right, we have these patients that you're treating consistently and they're dry and then they have a spontaneous subretinal hemorrhage. The, the, those cases are extremely frustrating for all of us as practitioners and patients, obviously more so, where they're under adequate control as far as we can tell, and then they have a bleed and they have it a day or a week or two weeks after an injection. It's really not because they're underdosed. And the, the, those, I often wonder if I should be calling those sort of the non-responders, or if that's a different process. Is that a mechanical process and not VEGF mediated? I think we don't understand enough about those acute bleeding episodes um, uh, why with the mechanism for, for driving those. But the overall term I use for patients is this that they're an incomplete um, responder. I don't like the suboptimal or non-responder. I just typically use incomplete responder. But I think of a complete responder as completely dry and then able to extend the meaningful interval. So I'll take that one step further and ask Jenny. So the patient that's 20, 30, looks, the macula looks great, but needs treatment every four weeks to look that way. Every time you extend, fluid comes back, the vision drops. Would you throw that in the suboptimal category or is that just a great response, but a frequent flyer and a high need patient? You know, I really go by functional outcomes. So that de by definition is a great functional outcome, 20, 30. And they do go the whole month. And just because they're wet in a month, to me, doesn't uh, qualify them as being suboptimal at all. I think they're responding to anti-VEGF. They just happen to have a higher need for anti-VEGF suppression. And I think once we get longer acting drugs, that patient will do well. So I would consider them a success and keep them on monthly as needed. Yeah, I find there's a lot of patients like that, every needing every four, five, six weeks, but are actually doing really well with great vision. Um, but there may be uh, small amounts of fluid or recurrent fluid that you don't want to tolerate, like you mentioned, especially if it's interretinal, like you mentioned. I got a brief comment about that. I, I think I love what you guys are saying. And I, I always try to give a carrot to those patients because those are the patients where the burden is the greatest. When we talk about burden, it's that patient that we're talking about. And I always tell them, look, you are like the, the perfect patient. I get it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a huge burden now, but, but just wait. There are agents, there are interventions coming that will allow us to decrease that burden because I do believe they're coming. And I don't want those patients to give up now and then lose vision. And then in a few years, when we have these other agents say, darn it, I wish I'd been more frequent earlier on. So I'm trying to keep those patients motivated. Well, that's almost a plant, right? That's almost a plant because we're going to start to get into what the future can do for us to make things better for our patients. Jenny, you were going to say something. I was going to say that might be the ideal patient for the PDS implant when and if it's approved. Ah, oh, you're jumping the gun there. We're going to get there. So <laughs> I was going to ask you, before we get into what's on the horizon, because that's coming, you know, how much more durable? So if, if we're using drugs that we're injecting that work on average to keep the macula in a, say, optimal state every eight weeks mean median with a range of four to 12, whatever that is, um, how much more durable does it have to be to be clinically meaningful? Is it on average? Is it two more weeks, four more weeks? What, what do you what do you think to be to say I'm going to prefer that drug 
um, when it gets on the market. Charlie, what's 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 more durable? I got three answers to that. I mean, the, the first and simplest in my mind is is incremental benefit. So, you know, if you take someone that's at five weeks and you make them, you can allow them to go six, that's a value add. If you take an eight weeker and you make them 10 weeks, that's a value add. So any longer for a given patient is a value add. I don't think it has to be a, a big, huge difference to be value add. Um, I think that, that's the most simplistic way. The other more subtle concern that I have looking at my own data is, if I take all of my patients, we did this recently, we looked at all of our treatment extend patients with stable treatment for at least four quarterly doses. So for a year, they were stable and dry, and then they continued on quarterly dosing. It turned out that about 12% per year had worsening of disease with continued quarterly dosing. And that was cumulative. So over like three or four years, about 40% of them needed actually more frequent dosing. So while we think in, in a short time span, the interval is pretty consistent, at least in, in my practice with, with my physician, my, with my doctors, um, there, there was a substantial portion of patients that were not as consistent as we would like over time. So if I could have an agent that was truly consistent with patients over time, and I knew that they only needed to be treated every three months, so I didn't have to worry about that meaningful percentage that's going to get worse, even though they used to be stable at three months, that would also be a value add. I'm going to ask Jenny a much harder question. Jenny, is there an injectable anti-VEGF, let's say theoretical, that is would be too long? too long in duration? Are you uncomfortable with a drug that claims to be more than six months or more than eight months, for example? You know, if, if there were such a drug, I think that would be great, but then I would worry about too much VEGF suppression because we know, you know, VEGF is neuroprotective. But I think more important than that is considering the other eye, because if you've got a drug that's going to last, say, a year, and then you think, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about this eye. You still have to see them back for the other eye. And typically, if they're high risk, I see them every six months, especially in that other eye, because that eye is at much higher risk for going on to choroidal neovascularization. That's an excellent point. We have to consider the whole patient, and that whole patient has two eyes. And the other eye could be at high risk for conversion if it's, if it's dry. We're going to take a brief break. That was excellent. And that was a great lead into well, the real heart and soul of talking about what you're most excited about coming in the future here. So we've been talking a lot about the need for greater durability. Obviously, our drugs are limited in that regard, and maybe even better efficacy too, but maybe durability is the, the low-hanging fruit. Um, so we're going to take a glimpse now into the future. Um, and I'm going to say the future is let's look at what you uh, see coming in the next two, three years or so. Um, so Charlie, I'll start with you. What are you most excited about and why? Thanks, Carl. It's amazing how much innovation and development there is right now in, in retina. And as you sort of implied, there's a lot all the way across the spectrum from preclinical things all the way that now have completed phase three data. So if I look at the near term, the only two things I really see on the near term are ferisumab and the port delivery system. There's a lot of other stuff in phase two and, and going into phase three and in phase three now that we can that we can certainly talk about. But those two things are the things that I really think are gonna be up, up next for us to put into our toolbox. And I'm excited for simply having more tools, right? We have a lot of patients with uh, neovascular AMD and other exudative retinal diseases that are looking for better vision, more durability. And I'm excited to give both of these options a try. They each come with their own sort of fascinating trials and data to unpack and safety signals also to discuss. Um, uh, but I'm excited for both of them is the short answer. 
And just because that's, that does represent more durability, I imagine, um, uh, not necessarily better efficacy because it's all still VEGF blockade. Jenny, uh, what comes up on your list? Yeah, I agree with Charlie. I'm really excited about furosemab, you know, with a bispecific antibody, anti-VEGF and anti-ANG2, because we have the one-year data from Tanaya and Lucerne, and we basically saw that 50% could go Q16 in the personalized treatment interval. So that's pretty cool. And uh, 70% could go Q12. So there's, there's our durability right there. So that excites me. And I think, you know, further down the pipeline, perhaps, are some of the drugs that can capture VEGF and bind them permanently, such as uh, KSI-301, that polymer. And I know that that's, you know, the Dazzle study is very early on. But again, there was uh, Q12, Q16, and even Q20-week dosing. Uh, so that's to me, is, is uh, going to be a lot of hope there for our patients to not have to come in to see us that often, but perhaps every three to five months. Yeah, I agree. Uh, between furosemab and KSI, I think we're looking at drugs with median durability of every three, maybe every four months, better than every two months. So that that, rep that could represent four more weeks of durability. Again, this is average, and we all know there's going to be a big range to that. We just don't know what it is yet. But you're right, furosemab, we have the phase three data. We'll have the Dazzle phase three data with uh, KSI within the next couple of years. So that's, that is all the near horizon. And uh, there's, there's other things coming, but too early to, to call, but potentially different mechanisms. Um, the whole uh, small molecule TKI, in, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they're in phase one, two, and, and maybe they're going to perform as well and or last longer because they're packaged in sustained delivery platforms, you know, by, uh, uh, microparticles and biodegradable polymers and such. So too early to call on that. Gene therapy, obviously, is looking really interesting. Um, potentially one and done there. Let me ask you about anything though that you might think would give us better efficacy. You know, after all, we're probably at the top of the dose response efficacy wise for VEGF blockade, but you mentioned ANG2. What else out there could possibly give us better efficacy? Jenny? I think OPT302, because that phase two study came out and I believe it showed about another line of improvement in terms of efficacy by blocking VEGF-C and VEGF-D. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a different, let's just say an, an additive mechanism of action blocking VEGF-CD in addition to a VEGF-A blocker. Um, phase two gave us better efficacy, visual acuity. And that's upfront and, and uh, yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I think of better efficacy in two phases, the upfront better vision, which is going to require a, another mechanism of action, right? And then long-term uh, better vision, which would be hopefully maintaining the initial vision gains better than we do now, which I think will come with the added durability component of things. So it is, it's, it, you know, when I look at the next three, four, five years, we're going to see big changes. We're going to see lots of therapeutics, second generation VEGF blockers, you might want to call them. But I think what we're using now is going to fall by the wayside for the most part. Maybe, maybe prove me wrong. I hope not. But I hope we're going to make those advances for at least better durability. You know, in testing these drugs, though, uh, obviously, it's all about the vision. But durability is, is key. We've, we've been talking about it. It's a huge unmet need. So when you design these studies, you know, often you scratch your head going, hmm, it's, it, looks, it looks kind of more durable, right? But you don't really know for sure. And it's never really used in a clinical trial, like we use them in practice. We mentioned treat and extend or personalized treatment interval. So do you wanna see the studies changing 
uh, in the future. Charlie, uh, how would you design these studies for the future to give us more practical clinical information? Yeah, it's a super important question. And I, I um, there, there's a lot of caveats and nuances to that. But I really think when I, I think of phase three trials, right, the primary goal almost always is to get regulatory approval of an agent. Um, and so I think the, the sponsors clearly keep that first and, and, and foremost. But then from an investigator, from a, from, a, from a clinician's perspective, there's two things I want to see. If I, if I leave safety out of it, safety is probably the most important thing. But if I think about two things from an efficacy perspective, I want to see what the maximum efficacy is first and foremost. So I want to know really truthfully, what I would like to know is what monthly dosing is going to do. That's why I was really glad that Frismab actually modeled their phase two data with in, in DME, for example, where they went six monthly doses, trying to achieve better vision. Because at the end of the day, while we're all mostly focused on durability, what patients I think care about most is vision. It, there've been multiple analyses showing the patients would receive more injections if they could see better. And I truly believe that talking to my own patients that vision is the most important thing, even though we spend most of our time talking about durability, because that's where all the innovation is. As you said, Carl, before, that's the low hanging fruit. So whatever we can do to get better vision, I want to do. So new agents, I would love to see really aggressive dosing because presumably that's going to give us the best vision. But then on the flip side of that, you really do want to see, you want to get a feeling for the durability. And I thought the Frisimab trials with their PTI arm, with their personalized treatment interval, were, were, were notably innovative with that to integrate basically an adoption of the treat and extend mantra into the, the, the confines of a double mast phase three program was impressive and really does give an indication of possible durability. The main caveat to that, of course, is that it's not necessarily the way we do treat and extend in clinics. The way we do treat and extend in clinic is often treat to dry and then extend, maybe with the caveat that that Jenny elegantly defined of sometimes you allow a little bit of fluid to persist, but that's your new baseline. But in all of these programs where there is a treat and extend or equivalent arm, they're allowing more fluid than we typically would in clinic. And so the, so the, so the direct translation to clinic, clinic, I think can be challenging. Well, I have to say, you know, um, just having this podcast, I get excited knowing that the future is bright, um, that we're going to have better drugs and we're going to have better outcomes um, and at the very least, uh, less burden for our patients to get to the office. And, you know, COVID really sort of drove that point home that how challenging it was um, to get to the office under certain circumstances and, and how patients suffered when they couldn't get to the office. And that happens, you know, even pre-COVID with, with comorbidities. Uh, and more durable agents will certainly help to mitigate the problems of drugs wearing off too quickly and patients losing vision. So I thank you both for your tremendous insight. You both are uh, world renowned uh, in, in this space and um, your, your opinions are highly valued. So thanks so much for being part of this podcast. Thank you.